Amen. It's our goal today to adore Him. So let's get our Bibles out and open up to the Song of Solomon. You uh, may not be familiar with the Song of Solomon. Just open to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you get to Isaiah, you went too far, back up. Uh, page 778 in the Pew Bible and probably pretty close to that in your Bible. And we are in our third week uh, talking about marriage. Today we're going to talk a little bit about conflict. And, uh, you know, you might ask the question, why four weeks of talking about marriage? Some people would say, why not 14 weeks about marriage? And, and then others are thinking, you know, four whole weeks about marriage? Well... Uh, mainly because we believe that God can resurrect any relationship, no matter how emotionally or spiritually dead it may be. And we've seen that time and time again here. Uh, we have uh, seen the power of God at work, and we also know and understand that uh, our marriage relationship is our most important earthly relationship, and it will uh, affect all other relationships in our lives. And so it's very important for us to have these conversations, whether we are married, whether we were married, whether we're planned to be married in the future, that we need to be aware of these things. Because um, if you ask the question, why do so many marriages struggle? You know, I've been giving you, you know, pieces along the way to sort of help you understand the, the God's intention and the components of marriage and the way they were intended to work so that it would bring you some clarity. And uh, really what you're going to begin to see is that it really boils down to two things. First of all, it's neglect. Too many of uh, marriages are just on autopilot. They're just going along. You have to be very intentional. You have to be very thoughtful and, uh, and, and very uh, just involved in the preservation and the strengthening of your marriage. You can't just ignore it and go along. And so uh, if things are going well for you today, then praise the Lord for that. And we just want to encourage you to uh, focus on some things to be able to ensure that you continue to grow in that relationship. If things are not where you'd like them to be, then amen. God will help you with that as well. The second uh, reason that so many marriages struggle, I believe, is just uh, wrong thinking. Um, I think that a lot of times uh, we have bought into what the culture tells us about marriage and what the culture has uh, sort of led us into believing, and that is going to always lead to trouble. So it's neglect and wrong thinking, and so I hope that each of these weeks I've, I've just implored you not to neglect your relationship with your spouse and then secondly, I'm doing my best to try to straighten out some of the wrong thinking that I know is uh, out there. Well, let's pray and then we'll ask God to bless the study of his word. Father, we want to thank you for your word, God. Thank you for what we're going to read today and for the great value that it contains for us, Lord. This is your word and we receive it humbly knowing that you spoke it, intended it for us. That, God, every single person in the hearing of my voice this morning can benefit from the hearing of your word. That it will not return void. And, God, that you give us ears that we might be able to hear. Lord, that the walls that uh, 
even now are going up in our hearts, God, that they would come crumbling down and we would just uh, open ourselves up and say, God, what do you have to say? We want to hear from you. And then help us through the power of your spirit, Lord, to respond rightly. For your glory, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you think about marriage, first of all, Anything, marriage is just one of the things, but anything that God intends to be a blessing can be a blessing. So if it's not a blessing, that doesn't mean it can't be a blessing. God intended for marriage to be a blessing like he did a lot of things. And so sometimes those things that he intends to be a blessing don't always feel like a blessing or work out to be a blessing, but they can be a blessing. And what we want to do is uh, get, have the right thinking about what God wants us to know about marriage so that we can receive the blessing of marriage and all marriages are going to have ups and downs they're going to have rocky times they're going to have struggles I mean I've started every one of these messages by just reminding us all that whenever two humans two fallen dented wounded humans commit their lives to be together there's going to be trouble two sinners put together is just going to make Two sinners struggling to stay together. That's what it's going to be. And so we just need to realize that. But also understand that if everything went smooth all the time, then how would marriage uh, be what God intended for it to be, which is a sanctifying process that makes us more and more like Jesus? If it was just smooth and easy all the time, it wouldn't make you more like Jesus. What makes us more like Jesus is working through the difficulties and growing through the challenges that marriage uh, provides us. And so... Um, I want you to just begin by setting all your thoughts around the first statement on your listening guide, which is your life story is more important than your love story. You see, before you can even begin to have a conversation or uh, begin to think or work upon your marriage, you've got to realize where your marriage ranks in the order of things in your life. And so again, it's about realizing that it's your life story first. It's your story of your life that we've talked about all the way through the book of 1 Thessalonians and how God is writing a story through you as you exist in the context in which God has placed you in. And so first of all, it's a life story. It's a relationship you have with God. And then your love story will flow out of that. And so in Song of Solomon, we're going to look in chapter 5 today. Now, the Song of Solomon is it's a love story. It's a love story of Solomon and his beloved. Uh, there's a lot of uh, challenging, uh, very graphic language in the Song of Solomon. It's a wonderful uh, gift from God that he's given us. It, in the first couple of chapters, it tells the story of uh, Solomon and his beloved and how they meet and, and begin to develop a relationship together and over time. Uh, grow in their love, how they struggle with uh, purity and how they obey God. And, and then uh, in the previous chapter, they, they got married and went on a honeymoon, so to speak, as people did in that time. And now this chapter 5 picks up right after the honeymoon. So all of you who are uh, married will appreciate uh, where we begin today. Song of Solomon chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Right after the honeymoon. You with me? When does this take place? Right after the honeymoon. I mean, we just got off the cruise ship. We just got back home. And uh, day one, verse two. 
I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. This is the, the woman speaking. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Now, now understand, when a man knocks on the door and he says that, he doesn't want to know where the vacuum cleaner is. Okay? That's not what he's asking. And the reason he's knocking on the door is that oftentimes uh, husbands and wives would have separate rooms, which was super unhelpful, I would think, in that. But that's the way they did it in this time. And so he's been out working late. He's come in. She's already laid down for the evening. So he knocks on the door and he says, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. I mean, I say that all the time to Lisa, just like that all the time, (laughs) all the time. Then she says this. So then uh, he said, for my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. So she answers him and says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Now, in Hebrew, that translates to, I have a headache. (laughs) So here we are, right off the honeymoon. He's out working late to pay for the honeymoon. He comes in, you know. She's already laid down for the night. He knocks on the door and says, "Uh, my dove, my perfect one. And uh, she says, You know, I'm already in bed. Uh, My feet are clean. Wow, that's the best thing you could come up with. My feet are clean. (laughs) So the next blanks on your listening guide are, we don't have marriage problems. We have people problems. See, a problem in a marriage is just a problem between two people. It's people problems before it's marriage problems. And so what we have here is two people who happen to be married but are having people problems. And, you know, what's eventually going to happen here is, you know, you can begin to think about the process of, well, when, when somebody, you know, puts theirself in the position that he has and he knocks on the door and, of course, she knows why he's knocking on the door. And so what's really going on here is he's making himself vulnerable. He's putting himself out there. And... She shot him down, and that can be kind of hurtful. And so now the two of them will have to figure out how they're going to respond to this situation. But before we get into that, I want us to think for a moment now. The the table is set for conflict. Let's ask ourselves the question now, why, why do we fight? Why is there conflict? Why is it inevitable And what is at the root of all of our conflict, whether it's conflict in marriage or conflict relationally in families or conflict at work, whatever conflict we have, what does the Bible tell us about why we have conflict? James chapter 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have? From now on, you can do yourself a great favor by remembering what I'm about to tell you. Based on what the Scripture says in James chapter 4, every time that you get in an argument, always remind yourself the reason we're arguing is because I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get my way. That's why we're arguing. 
And when you remind yourself of that, it will prevent you from continuing down a very destructive path. You'll realize, wait a second. What am I? Eight? That's what eight-year-olds do. You know, he touched me. He, you know, tell him to get out of my room. You know, he didn't, I didn't get my way. But we grow up and we stop saying things like that. But we get in these quarrels and these conflicts. And really what it, at the bottom of it all is, I didn't get what I want. And so we have this setting, which is not unlike what a setting that could happen in, in many people's lives. But it could be anything, whatever it is. One person wants one thing, somebody doesn't. Uh, accommodate them, life doesn't accommodate them, whatever, it doesn't work out, and then suddenly there's conflict. Look at verse 4. So she says, Well, my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him, so I arose to open the door for my beloved, and my hand dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the lock. So she lays there for a minute, She thinks about that line, you know, fellas, you might want to remember that, my dove, my perfect. She thought about it a minute. It didn't work immediately, but as she thought about it, she thought, you know, I think I'm going to get up and unlock the door. So she gets up to unlock the door, but he's already gone. He's not there. But what she finds is that he left some myrrh there, some very expensive, fine perfume, if you will, on the doorknob as a reminder to her that he's been there. Now, I want us to just think about the imagery here for a second because it's fascinating. The more you, you think about verses 4 and 5, you realize that rather than reacting to the situation, there's always an opportunity for us to respond in love. And the fact that he left uh, myrrh on the door is a... It, It tells us something. In other words, Solomon here anoints, if you will, the very thing that is separating him from his beloved. And he anoints it with something very precious. You see, now, if you think about this for a second, you you could imagine that Maybe in that moment, what some people might want to do is kick the door down or break the lock off, but he doesn't do that. The very thing that is separating him from his beloved, he anoints with something very precious. What did God do in response to our rebellion against him? What did God do in response to what separated us from him? He anointed the very thing that separated us, and He anointed the cross with something very precious, His Son, to bring us together. And so there's powerful imagery here in the way that Solomon responds to uh, being put off, if you will, by his new bride. In Romans chapter 8, the Scripture says that God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What, what is... is Solomon not demonstrating his love for his bride. I mean, clearly he is. Clearly. And you know what God could have done with me and you? He could have made the conflict all about who's right and who's wrong. Instead of anointing the thing that separated us from him, 
What he could have done is he could have said, well, you know, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. He could have showed up, instead of, instead of sending a son to be the Savior of the world, he could have showed up as a judge to bring justice to the world. That's what he could have done. And he would have been justified in doing that, amen? He would have been justified in saying, you know what? I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. Now, hold on a second. Because how many times in marriage are we, do we feel wounded and our response is, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not right. You hurt me. You shouldn't have done that. I, di- I didn't deserve that. Now, now, wait a minute. When did we start wanting what we deserve? We don't want what we deserve, do we? So let's just, can we just say right now in all of our hearts together what we don't want in our marriages and our relationships is what we deserve? That's what we don't want. We don't want to give what people deserve and we don't want to receive what we deserve. That's not what we want. What we want is grace. And so instead of showing up as the judge, God shows up and brings grace. And so here we see Solomon anointing the very thing that's separating him from his beloved. I think where this, where this point oftentimes goes off track or goes awry in our relationships is we, we want to focus on being right instead of focus on building relationship. Conflict, listen, don't focus on being right. That's a mistake. What good is it going to do to prove that you are right? What, how, what is the redemptive value of you proving that you're right in a conflict in your relationship? Because in order for you to do that, it's going to be at the demise of your spouse. Now, God could have just made everything about right and wrong. Instead, He made it all about building a relationship. And the way to build a relationship in conflict is to bring grace into the relationship. To respond gracefully, not to, not to make it about being right. All right, so she gets up. He's gone. I'm just letting the guys think in their head for a minute. Like, uh-huh, you see, you should have got up. Verse 6, so she opened for her beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke, and I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. Now, how does Solomon deal with this feeling of rejection? He could have been uh, angry. He could have been bitter. He could have been mad. And, and what he does is he, he leaves. He didn't stay there and keep knocking. He didn't start negotiating. He knocked. He said what he needed to say. She said, you know, well, you know, my feet are clean. <laughs> and so he thought, I'm going to leave a little something on the doorknob to remind her of my love for her. And he left. And so she gets up and opens the door and he's not there. How do you respond when you're hurt? What's your response to being hurt in relationship? As a, as a spouse, how do you respond in conflict? Do you, uh, do you leave? 
Do you storm off? Do you uh, stay and desire that everything is going to be, everything has to be talked out? And then, you know, he's gone. So now the question is, what's she going to do? Because there's a whole other list of choices there. Well, he shouldn't have left, just went back, laid in the bed, said, you know, if he really cared, he would have waited a little longer. He would have not twice or would it, right? I mean, think of all the opportunities for struggle here. What do you do? How do you respond when you feel wounded in your marriage relationship? I think there's three ways that we primarily deal with conflict. And the easiest way to remember those three ways is just to fix some uh, uh, simple word to it that we can remember. The first way is you deal with it like a bear. Some of you in the room deal with conflict like a bear. The way that a bear deals with conflict. I spent a lot of time uh, hiking across the uh, Appalachian Trail. There's lots of bears. You're always paying attention for bears. Let me tell you what you don't want to do. You don't want to get in a conflict with a bear. Because if you get in a conflict with a bear... Uh, you're not going to get out of that conflict. The bear is going to ensure that there's going to be a connection made. Some of you, when you get wounded, when you get hurt, you are relentless. In other words, you're like a bear in conflict. You attack. You become aggressive. You want to know what's going on. You want answers. You want to get to the bottom of it. You're, You're very aggressive. You need resolution. You see, if you, if you intimidate a bear, the bear is going to get resolution. And resolution for a bear is not running away. It's taking care of you. Some of you are sitting in here thinking to yourself, I'm a bear. Sometimes it's the wife. Sometimes it's the husband. Some of you are thinking, I'm sitting next to a bear. Sometimes he's a teddy bear and sometimes he's a grizzly bear. Or sometimes she is. Sometimes some of you deal with conflict like a turtle. When a turtle gets into conflict, what does a turtle do? It retracts. It retreats. It goes in for shelter. It goes in for safety. When you see the turtle trying to cross the road and the cars are going around it, you know, and, it, and, and he's in there just like, you know, waiting for quiet. When a turtle senses danger, they hide. They stay protected. They pull themselves in. And what a turtle does is what some of you do when you get into conflict. You just pull inside, and you just shut down, and you're just waiting for the storm to blow over. You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to address it. You just want to forget about it. Just stay in your shell until everything calms down. And once it calms down, then you'll come out of your shell And uh, you just want to go right on back to uh, living. Now the problem is, is that what if a turtle is married to a bear? The bear's ranting and raving. And the more the bear is aggressive towards the turtle, the more the turtle pulls in. Until finally the bear just wears out. And then the turtle finally finds safety to come out. And then once the turtle comes out, then we're just going to pretend like everything's fine, but nothing's really ever been resolved because of all this unhealthy tension going back and forth, back and forth. But some of you aren't a bear and some of you aren't a turtle. Some of you are a porcupine. 
In fact, a lot of us in the room are porcupines. A porcupine deals with conflict in a very interesting way. The porcupine doesn't attack you to hurt you. The porcupine is designed so that you get hurt when you come to it. You hurt yourself. You see, when you're a porcupine, the way you deal with uh, conflict is is in a passive-aggressive way. What you do is you... uh, maneuver yourself so that the other person gets wounded around you, but you don't actually directly do it. It's passive-aggressive. It's not attacking, but, you know, you deal with conflict by using guilt trips or snide remarks or the cold shoulder. That's a porcupine. So sometimes there's a bear, sometimes there's a turtle, sometimes there's a porcupine, and there's some combination of those in every marriage. And when you come to conflict, you need to understand the way that you have a tendency to deal with conflict. You also need to understand the tendency that your spouse has with dealing with conflict. Because here, as we're looking at what's going on between Solomon and his beloved, we're realizing all the possibilities. And what I'm hoping you're doing is thinking, now, if this is you, if this is your marriage, what's going to happen here? How is this going to go? Who's going to do what? Who's going to say what? How are we going to... Respond, but now let me just remind you of something as you're all sort of thinking about which animal you're married to. It's important for you to make a mental note that it's not your job to fix your spouse. It's not your job to fix your spouse. Whose job is it? It's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to fix your spouse. The worst thing you can do is walk out of one of these marriage sermons and think, I'm going home and I'm going to fix my spouse. That is a colossal mistake on your part. You will never, ever fix anybody. God is the only one that fixes. The only way to fix a person is from the inside out. And the only one who can do that is the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit's job. It's His job to fix your spouse. And so... We've got conflict. We're thinking about the way we would uh, deal with conflict in our own relationship and how this is going to work out. In verse 7, so she's got up. She's went to the door. Nobody's there. She's calling for him. Verse 7, then the watchman who went about the city found me and struck me and wounded me. The keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. Now, this is strange. Well, what just happened? Well, what happened was... This is how she deals with conflict. He's gone. Did she go back to bed? Is she a turtle? Is she a porcupine? Or is she a bear? What did she do? She put her clean feet back in her dirty shoes, put her robe back on, and went out looking for him. And it's not a good idea for a young lady to be roaming around the streets late at night in the dark by herself. And that's what she does. And so she goes running out into the dark, chasing after him, and she winds up getting in trouble. And some people abuse her. Now, now you've got a man who left, a woman who went after him. She's upset because he's wounded. She's upset. Tensions are running high. What's a woman in this situation going to do? I mean, not, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a bear, turtle, porcupine. If you're a female, 
What are you going to do in this situation? You're going to go tell your girlfriends. Look at verse 8. She says, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I'm lovesick. What is your beloved more than another beloved, they say, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you so charge us, the Shulamite? In other words, her friends are like, well, what makes your, what makes your husband so great? Now look at what she says. Now remember, it's late, she's frazzled, she was asleep, now she's out running around the city looking for him. She doesn't know where he is, she's banged up, we don't exactly know what's happened with with her running into these uh, men. And then her girlfriend starts saying, ah, is he really that great? I mean, why don't you just go home and go back to sleep? And here's what she says in verse 10, she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, chief among 10,000. That means distinguished among 10,000 men. She said his head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. Sorry, there's some of you in here. Uh, Your wife doesn't say that about your head, does she? She says your head is like the finest gold, like a nugget of gold, right? <laughs> My wife never says, your locks are wavy and black like a raven. No. But she says about him in verse 12, his eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. I mean, whoa. Why didn't you open the doors? What I'm thinking. <laughs> His hands are rods of gold set in barrel. His body is carved ivory. That means he has a six pack abs. This guy is in shape, inlaid with sapphires. His legs are like pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now listen, she is clearly here expressing her genuine feelings about her, her husband. These aren't just empty words. She's not just talking up her husband in front of these other ladies. No, no. These are words from her heart about this man whom she loved. And as we talked last week about a wife's need to be loved and a husband's need to be respected, you you need to be reminded this morning that a wife will never receive counterfeit love and a husband will never receive counterfeit respect. You see, if God made a man to need and desire respect, then wouldn't it only make sense that he would Give us a filter, a supernatural ability to know. We know when respect is genuine and disingenuous. Just like you know when we come home with flowers and it's only because we're in trouble. You know that. We can't fool you. You see, because there's one place your heart can never be fooled by your husband. That's in the love department. And there's one place that a man's heart can never be fooled by his wife. And that's in the respect department. And so she is speaking from her heart, but, but, 
my goodness, it, it just reminds us of the power of words. And, and it tells us so much about the two of them. You know, we want to say, we want to make sure that whatever comes off our lips is true. But we don't want to say everything that is true. That would be a horrible mistake. The scripture says in Ephesians 4, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for and necessary for edification to impart grace to the hearers. See, what the scripture is saying is that you want to say what you say needs to be imparting grace. It needs to build people up. It needs to be a blessing. And it needs to be true. But don't say everything that's true. Because sometimes truth doesn't build up, it tears down. Sometimes truth doesn't need to be said. There's no good in it. Now, that doesn't mean that we only say things that make people feel good. And we only, because sometimes we need to say something that's true, but it's for their good. But you don't ever want to say something true that's hurtful for the only purpose is to say it because you know it wounds. We've got to be very careful about that. We've got to know the... the, the the warning of Scripture about words. Now, Solomon also wrote in Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, you've probably heard that quoted a thousand times, but have you ever stopped to look it up and to realize the context in which he says that? Do you know what the very next verse in Proverbs 18 says? Right after life and death are in the power of the tongue, the Scripture says... He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I wonder why the Bible says that. It's because we need to be reminded, especially in marriage, especially men, we've got to be reminded of the power of our words. We've got to be very careful about the words that we use with our spouses. They have power. So... Her words that she speaks about her husband tells us something about their relationship. Remember, they're they're just newly married. It tells me that they spent time before they got married getting to know each other, building a foundation in the relationship that she knows him. She knows his character. She knows his nature. He's not a stranger to her. This, wasn't, this is somebody that she really knows and really understands. And it brings up an important point that the foundation of a good marriage is a good friendship. That before a marriage should ever become a marriage, it should become a friendship. At the core of every solid marriage is a solid friendship. And you got to, listen... You know, see, we all know this. Somehow it just doesn't translate. We all know that, that you know, friendships, they, they take a little bit of effort. They take a little bit of work. But somehow when we're married, we just assume because we're married that just, you know, because there's this, you know, commitment there, because we've sort of been pronounced husband and wife that we can just sort of cruise along on autopilot and everything's going to be okay. That's going to lead to disaster every time, every time. You cannot neglect this relationship. And so we see that the foundation here is that they they know each other. There's a a bond here that existed prior to them getting married. Okay, so she tells them, you know, why he's so important to her and how amazing and wonderful he is. But the tension's still there because she doesn't know where he is, and she's still frantically looking for him. And so go down to to chapter 6, verse 1. 
So she says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among you? Where is your beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with you, the Shulamite? In other words, she's looking for him, they're looking for him, there's this search party, and it, it, it just makes me sort of want to pause here and say, okay, so when conflict arises in your life, and let's say you're a turtle, or let's say you're a porcupine, and you leave, and you walk away, you know, for the, for maybe for the noble sake of peace, or maybe for uh, that's your porcupine way of being passive-aggressive, whatever reasoning you have, you leave. But my question is this, when there's conflict and tension, and you walk away, where do you go? What do you turn to? What happens so oftentimes? There's conflict in a marriage. And so the wife storms out and gets in the car and drives off. And then the husband sits down at the computer and starts looking at things he shouldn't look at. Somebody starts getting on Facebook and uh, looking up their old flames or seeing what happened to people they went to high school with. Some people get mad and get in their car and drive to the casino. Some people get mad and go to the liquor store or the bar. Some people get mad. I mean, what, where do you, what do you run? Where do you turn? Where do you go? When you're mad and you're fleeing in conflict or you've been left in conflict, what is it that you turn to? You know what it is because... All of us have been here. All of us have been in conflict. But what is it that you do? Do you just sit there and turn the TV on and go, they'll be back? You ever thought about how dysfunctional we are? How many of you right now, in your heart, honestly, honestly are saying, you know what I do, Pastor? I go straight into my closet and I get on my knees and I begin to pray. The first thing I do is I go to, I go to my Bible and I open it up. What, why, why is that so rare? We're so fixated on the conflict, so fixated on being right, so consumed with winning. It's like we've forgotten that we're even Christians in the heart of a conflict. How do I know that? I know that because thousands and thousands of conversations. Every conceivable scenario has been voiced in the walls of my office. I've heard it all. And I know how this goes. And it's back and forth and back and forth. And two people who are committed to spend their lives together come in and sit down. And suddenly, one of them is the enemy against the other one. And in the course of all the conversation about why we're here and what happened about this. But why weren't you? No one says, well, and, and, and so I finally came back home and there they were. Prostrate on the living room floor just begging God to work mightily in our marriage. Or there, you know, reading the scripture. Just searching for answers to address the, the problems that are going on inside. 
What do you run to? Poor behavior by a spouse does not give you license to respond with poor behavior. Now, your parents told you that when you were five. And you've told your kids that the whole time they grew up. But why is it in marriage that when somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt back? Why is it that the most common phrase in Scripture regarding marriage is that the two shall become one flesh? Why is that Old Testament, New Testament? It's all over the Scripture. Why? Because it's important. Because it would help us to understand that when we're doing that, we're merely hurting ourselves. The Scripture says in 1 Peter 3, don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. But on the contrary, bless. Be a blessing for to this you were called. You're a Christian. You are born again, bought with a price. You, you've been forgiven of all of your sin. What are you doing? Have you forgotten who you are? And if, you, if you're a blessing rather than cursing, then you'll obtain a blessing. So look at verse 2. She says, My beloved has gone to his garden to the beds of spices, to feed the flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. So she goes, she figures out where he is. She goes there and there he is in the garden. Now if you read the whole book of the Song of Solomon, you'd know the prominence of the garden in this relationship because you know what this garden is? This is the very garden that in chapter 2 they met in. He was working in the garden. She comes up. He notices her. She notices him. And whammo, a love story begins right here in this very garden. And so he goes back to the place where he met her. And then in verse 3, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. It's a, it's a statement of, of possession, of, of permanence, of, of ownership. In other words, I belong to him and he belongs to me. That all that he is, is mine. And all that I am is his. And here's what the understanding here of is. Now, I might be wounded. I might be hurt. I might be frustrated. But it doesn't change the fact that I belong to her and she belongs to me. That marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's not just some a verbal agreement, some because we have a marriage license, it's not a contract that binds us like one that we sign when we're buying a house. It's a covenant. It's saying that I am vesting my life in this relationship and the other person saying I'm vesting my life in this relationship to the degree that we're going to become one, inseparable, and we're going to remain that way. So no matter whether it's convenient or inconvenient, no matter whether there's ups or downs in riches or in poverty, in sickness or in health, hence all the things that we say in a wedding ceremony, it's because it's not a contract, it's a covenant. It's based on commitment, not convenience. Listen, just because things are difficult, just because things are hard, just because you're wounded, just because there's problems, just because you're not where you want to be, it's not based on convenience. It never was. 
It never was. Why did we ever think it was going to be easy all the time? Who, who, who told us that? I'll tell you who told us that. Every chick flick you've ever seen told you that. I mean, everyone I've ever endured told me that. Everyone. And you know what? That's not how it is. It, it doesn't always work out uh, to just be, you know, it's ever after, but it's not always happy. Sometimes it's hard, but it's in the hard times that we grow. It's not a, it's not a relationship based on convenience. And so she finds him there in the garden where they met. So how does, it, how does he respond to her? Look at verse 4. Where you been? Oh, now you come crawling back to me. Oh, so when I knock on the door, that's not good enough for you. Oh, look at you, little Miss Dirty Foot. <laughs> what changed? Well, it'd be so easy to be a porcupine right here, wouldn't it? Oh, man. He says... Oh, my, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah. That's the most beautiful city in Israel. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as, as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. I imagine her eyes are teared up. She's upset, and she's, she's crying. And he's like, he doesn't want to see her cry. It breaks his heart to see her upset. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Man, that never works for me. I've tried that. <laughs> Shoot, never. I mean, I put the flock of goats thing on Lisa, man. Whoo, shut me down instantaneously. Going down from Gilead. Sorry, it's awkward. My mother-in-law's in here. It's just weird. Verse 6. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. I didn't even try that one. I'm like, somebody likes it. Her husband's going, flock of goats. <laughs> okay, not that. Okay. Uh, so that the sheep have come up from washing. Everyone bears twins and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind the veil. Now, do you see this... Uh, what he says here to her? Now, now, I want you to understand something. He's not just saying, again, they sound like he's just, you know, a bunch of lines. But they're not. And we know that. This is a very, very specific interaction, this whole entire narrative that we're looking at. What he does is he repeats exactly verbatim, word for word, what he said back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And you know when that was? On their wedding day. So the little poem that he wrote her for their marriage ceremony, in the midst of their disagreement and conflict, when she shows up at the garden, you know what he does? He quotes that back to her. I mean, this guy is good. He's good. He doesn't retaliate. 
He says these words that have already penetrated so deeply into her heart. And she's listening as he's saying that. And, and you, can just, you can just sense in this moment what's happening. That here's this wife receiving what God made her to receive. Yes, there's been strife. Yes, there's been conflict. But now they see each other. They're back together. And he is expressing to her how much he loves her. And she, in coming for him, is expressing to her how much she appreciates him and respects him. You see, and so the two of them are meeting each other with their needs. They're meeting each other where they need to go. They're coming back to, you know, there's, there's been, they, they, the train got off the track for a minute. But rather than just keep going off, just back and forth and back and forth. Well, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. Will you? Instead, they, the train gets off and then they come back to where they're supposed to be. What would happen if every husband understood that his wife's greatest need was to be loved and if every wife understood that her husband's greatest need was to be appreciated or respected what would happen to our disagreements and our conflicts how how would resolution come in such a different way and so he quotes back to her these special words i want you to look down at verse 11 so I went down to the Garden of Nuts. By the way, I, uh, I know that a lot of you like to name your Sunday school classes after verses. I think this would be a good one. I think the Garden of Nuts would be a great Sunday school class. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, I thought of that. I mean, it's biblical, right? So, welcome to the Garden of Nuts. To see the verdure or the greenness, the lushness of the valley. To see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. In other words, so he's saying, look, I, I came back. You know, I, I felt rejected. So I, I went back to the place that reminds me of you. I came back to sit in the garden where I first met you and reflect on how much I love you and what you mean to me and to see how the things in this garden have, have grown and blossomed over the time that we've known each other just like our relationship together has. You see the, the imagery here of, of what's happening? And the, the point is, I feel like what we're seeing here is that is them seizing this opportunity the realization that conflict in marriage is an opportunity to draw closer rather than draw lines in the sand. My goodness. Well, why, are, why, why are we drawing lines in the sand in our relationship? When there's conflict, it's an opportunity to draw closer. In other words, if, if your spouse was physically wounded you would immediately jump into action and begin to bandage their wounds and, and you know, put a, a, a compress on their head and, and you know, 
take care of them and make them some soup or, or help them or whatever, right? But when we're emotionally wounded, then we just lash back out. Just because you can't see the wound doesn't mean the wound isn't there. Every person that's ever married another person has old wounds that they bring into that relationship. Nobody in the history of the world has ever gotten married that didn't bring old wounds into the relationship. Now what happens to every person who has old wounds, which is all of us? Anytime anything comes close to or resembles any of our old wounds, what happens? We rear up because we're sensitive there. Because why? Because we ignore our old wounds instead of acknowledge them and, and bring healing into them. And so anywhere that you're wounded is the potential for great conflict to fester. And so that whenever there's conflict, when you come home and your husband is in a terrible mood or your wife's in a terrible mood and there's a, an opportunity for conflict, don't draw a line in the sand. Look at them as if they got a broken leg or a gaping wound in their forehead and begin to minister to them and begin to pour grace on them and realize, listen, something is wrong. Something's wrong. But it's an opportunity. But if you draw a line in the sand... It's only going to get worse. You know, I think his, Solomon's intention here was clear from the beginning. Like I said, he didn't knock on the door wondering where the vacuum was. But you know, when it didn't go the way that he had hoped it would go, and there was great opportunity for him to be greatly wounded, for him to feel great, you know, to want to be vengeful and to get back. But instead, he, he leaves not pouting. Okay, he didn't leave pouting. He didn't leave to punish her. Well, I'll show her. He didn't leave and run to some destructive behavior. He left and he went to a specific place to reflect on his love and adoration for her. To, I believe, to, to examine himself. And to say, you know, this, if things aren't right between me and my wife, then things aren't right. They're not right. It just symbolizes the, the, the reality that they're one flesh. Did you notice that... Uh, a, a, Cross these verses and then again look at verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that, you may, that we may look upon you. You see, whenever the, the, the ladies in Jerusalem call her Shulamite, he calls her here Shulamite. What is that word? Solomon in Hebrew, Shulamon. Shulamite means it's the female version of Solomon. In other words... It means we're one. We're the same. I'm Shulamon, you're Shulamite. We're together. We're in this. We're one flesh. We, we need to be far more concerned about winning the heart of our spouse than winning the disagreement or winning the conflict. When you fight with your spouse... You can't win. How absurd would it be for 
Shulamon to fight Shulamite. It would be absurd. It would be like you going home and taking a hammer and starting to bash your thumb in with a hammer. It would be absurd. But that's what we do when we, we fight and we war back and forth. Now we skipped over that middle part in, in the uh, chapter 6. I want you to go back to verse 8 and I want to draw your attention to something in closing. Look at verse 8 in chapter 6. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Now, when he says this, he is symbolizing that his beloved is without comparison in the world. That's what he says. But if you know your Bible, it draws your attention to something because you start to think, hmm, you know about Solomon? Solomon ended up having 700 wives, didn't he? Yeah. And when you see that word concubines, you start thinking about, hmm. You see, when Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, it was early in his life. Remember, he had black wavy hair like, the, like a raven. It wasn't any gray hair. He's a young man. And so early in his life, we're, we're getting to peek into this uh, the, the man that he was and the relationship that he had with his beloved wife. At the end of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes. Where at the end, after he had gotten off track and ended up with 700 wives and a whole bunch of concubines, and he says, you know what, it's all just vanity. It's just a huge mistake. And I've wasted so much of my time and I've made such a disaster of so many things but see he didn't start this is how he started out this is the man he was originally he wrote in the book of proverbs which was in the middle of song of solomon's song of solomon and ecclesiastes he wrote let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth i believe when he wrote that he was talking about this woman right here the wife of his youth his beloved but there's a warning in this, isn't there? Something went bad wrong in Solomon's life. We've just watched how he has handled himself with such grace and dignity and this amazing relationship that we have recorded in Scripture between him and his wife. But he lost sight of things. And how did that happen? In 1 Kings chapter 11, we find out what happened. The scripture says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. He loved women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. And from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely, if you do, they will turn your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And he ended up with 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And look at what the Bible says in verse 4. 
For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand what the Scripture is telling us this morning. No matter how solid the ground that you think you're standing on right now, you better take heed. Don't you ever neglect or take your eyes off your marriage. Because even Solomon lost his way. And let me tell you something. He didn't just lose his way. He, if, if you keep reading in 1 Kings 11, you find out that he married women, Sidonian women. They worship a god, Ashtoreth. You know, the, the Josiah ended up tearing all these down. The sex goddess, he built temples to Asherah. But not only that, he had, he had Ammonite wives who began to influence them with their beliefs. And they worship a god named Molech. And do you know how you pay tribute to Molech? Molech is a god... Uh, made of bronze with two large hands, palm up, facing out like this. A hole in the belly where you kindle a giant fire. And the way you worship Molech is you take a child and you sacrifice children in the palms of that God's hands. They burn infants. Some of you are looking at me like, well, that could never be me. Listen, if you think that, you're a fool. This is the wisest man who ever lived. What chance do we have? Don't take your eyes off your marriage. It's important. You honor the husband or the wife of your youth. You, you keep your eyes fixed on the cross. If you deviate away from the Lord, you place yourself in grave danger. And Solomon is living proof of that. And that's why you read Ecclesiastes and he is a broken-hearted man who has learned the lessons the hard way. But when he was young, he had it all right. We got to be careful the way we handle our conflict. If you want to stay married, stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. The goal is not for you to be closer to your spouse than anybody on earth. Your goal is for you and me to be closer to Jesus than anybody on earth. The scripture says in James chapter 4 verse 8, if you, the Lord says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. So this morning, I, I plead with you. That wherever you are, whatever the circumstance or situation you find yourself in, listen. God, everything that God intended to be a blessing can be a blessing. Because to say it can't is to say that God, there's something God can't do and you know that's not true. So everything that God intended to be a blessing can be a blessing. And so if it's not a blessing this morning, then there's hope. There's hope. And for all of us, there's room to grow, isn't there? And if it is a blessing, there's a warning. 
There's an opportunity to cultivate, to stay fixated on what matters the most and to be warned that there are, there are powers and principalities at work against our families and against our marriages to draw our affections away to something else. And how many times have we seen it? How many times have we seen the husband or the wife that once faithfully walked with God and sat together in church and amen to Sunday like this and things went so horribly awry and they never thought they'd be there. Don't neglect your relationship with Jesus. This morning, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to to write some things. To respond to all these things that we've talked about this morning, whether it's personally, relationally, whatever it is, and to say, Lord, I need to, I need to be reminded this morning. I needed to be convicted about some things in my life, the way that I respond in conflict, the things that I run to. My, my tendencies are unhealthy. My, my, my desire to be proven right. My... All, whatever it is. But listen, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. And he's saying, you come unto me. You bring all your weakness to me and I'll be your strength. I'll, I'll walk with you. I'll be there for you. I'll help you. You just come unto me. You draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. That's the invitation this morning. Let's stand and bow our heads.